0: copy of the scriptures, whether that is in book or app form, and to turn or swipe to John chapter 7. I'm going to begin reading at verse 53, which is the last verse of that chapter, and I'm going to read till chapter 8, verse 11. This is the point in our gathering where we would gather around the scriptures and come underneath the scriptures and allow God to speak to us from them to to give his word to us and, and as we receive that and in just a few moments after that we uh, want to respond to that word with worship we uh, believe that God reveals himself to us and we receive that revelation of himself but it's not meant to terminate upon ourselves God's revelation to us is meant to lead us in a response of worship that uh, the the scriptures speak of this like in, in patterns like breathing in and then breathing out inhaling God's God's revelation God's grace breathing in and then breathing out exhaling His praise um, the scriptures talk about themselves as being like food for our bodies and yet we know that if we were just continually to consume and consume and consume without an uh, expenditure of energy of uh, of the usefulness of what we take in that. That, that's not healthy. And so um, just like you can all, you, we need to breathe in, we also need to breathe out. And so we respond to God's word in worship um, after a, a time, what we call connection time. Uh, we also have a few announcements later on, uh, some really critical, some important announcements for the life of our church. Um, so that's, that's what's coming. So let's read John chapter uh, 753 till 8 verse 11. We're in the middle of a series on John's gospel, John's biography of Jesus. Then each went to his own home, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, This woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law of Moses, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, If any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time. The older ones first. Until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. This is God's word. This is, without a doubt, one of my favorite passages in all of the scripture. I'm hard-pressed to think of another passage of scripture where we can draw such hope from a passage which we can live by take guidance from gain clarity from in this passage of a sinner caught in the act i'm grateful so grateful that this story is here in the bible but we need to ask the question, is it in the Bible? Because you may, uh, if you were reading along, may uh, have noticed a, a parenthesis in, in front of this passage, depending on the translation that you use. The translation um, that I read from says, The earliest manuscripts and many other ancient witnesses do not have John seven fifty three to 8, verse 11. So the translators are telling us something, and we need to at least um, address this. So uh, we have... The the New Testament was not originally written in English. We don't believe that it's inspired in English. Um, The New Testament uh, that we have was written in Greek. We believe that it's inspired by God in the original Greek language. And we... uh, Actually, thankfully, I think don't have the original documents, so we don't have the original uh, John, uh, you know, piece of paper that John wrote down his gospel on. We uh, have manuscripts. I'm I'm thankful that we don't have the original. I'm sure that by now we would have um, started to worship them, maybe charged money to go and see them, um, and so. What what was happening before you know the the printing press Gutenberg didn't invent the printing press till for, around 1450, and um, up until this point, uh, the New Testament was uh, copied from um, from the original manuscripts and copied into many many different uh, copies by um, by scribes, um, and so it was copied by hand now. When uh, a document like that, a document is copied by hand from one copy to another copy, and then from another copy to another copy, there's not the same quality control that a mechanical printing press would provide. Now, thankfully, the New Testament is preserved for us with incredible care, with incredible accuracy, and we have incredible confidence that the Greek New Testament that we have um, is, in fact, the original exactly like the original Greek that was um, pr- uh, written in uh, on, originally by the original authors. Because the Greek New Testament that we uh, base our translations off are, are based on hundreds, and in some cases thousands, of manuscripts. And many of those manuscripts are within uh, a couple of generations of Jesus walking on earth. So within a generation or two of these uh, letters or these gospels being written down in the original form so we have we have this incredible abundance of manuscripts and we have incredible accuracy and agreement among them and so if you can imagine so there was the original and then the original was copied and so now we have two and so now a copy was made of this copy and now we have the original plus two more and we see it spread out right and so um, within a couple of generations, we have hundreds, and in, in many cases thousands, of manuscripts t- talking about the original. And um, we have incredible agreement among those. So we, can, um, we have incredible confidence that what we have is the original. So for example, in comparison, Aristotle, his uh, primary writings, we have five manuscripts of Aristotle the earliest of which is from 1,300 years after he lived. Now, I don't hear any uh, scholars out there clamoring that we need to go and recover the lost Aristotle. they're, they're, They're happy with five manuscripts written 1,300 years after the original Aristotle. Again, we have hundreds, we have even thousands of copies of manuscripts within a couple generations of Jesus Bruce Metzger, one of the, he uh, was a Princeton professor who devoted his life to, um, I don't want to get bogged down in technical details here, uh, but who devoted himself to text, uh, you know, uh, textual criticism says that there is an embarrassment of riches with the New Testament. And so what we, can, what we know about the New Testament is that there were not any parts that were lost, but it looks like there were a few parts that were added in along the way. And so this passage that we just read appears in the majority of the manuscripts. That's why it's here. However, um, it is, does not appear in the earliest manuscripts that we have. It doesn't appear in the earliest. It appears in the majority of our manuscripts, but as we... Um, the the ones that were closest to the life of Jesus, that were closest to the original um, manuscript, they, it's not here. And um, furthermore, uh, we have many commentaries of church fathers, early church fathers, commenting on uh, the scriptures as they were written. And uh, all of them skip over this passage. And so it appears like this um, this passage was added in after. Many actually believe, though, that it was written by Luke, because in some manuscripts it appears in Luke's gospel. It does, however, read like the real Jesus. It reads like eyewitness testimony. The theology that's embedded in this passage is New Testament theology. We believe, and the scholars who may um, who who are almost unanimous in uh, declare in believing that this was not originally John's writing, are also unanimous in saying that this is an authentic story recorded by eyewitnesses. This is the real Jesus. This is a passage about good news for bad people through Jesus. And so we're going to enjoy this passage as Scripture together this morning by asking uh, three questions. The three questions I want to consider this passage, that's the end of the academic Technical lecture. Um, if you're interested more in this, you can. Uh, I certainly have some resources that uh, you you may fully enjoy. Um, three questions uh, we want to examine this passage. What's wrong with this picture? I want to think think about what's right with this picture and how we can step inside this picture. So first of all, what is wrong with this picture of this woman caught in the act of adultery, brought to Jesus by religious leaders? Saying, what should we do with her? First, two things I think are wrong with this passage, of this picture. Two things are wrong. First thing is wrong is, where's the man? Right? Where's the guy? It takes two to tango. Where is the man? The law that uh, these religious leaders uh, refer to would require eyewitness testimony. So people who have seen the act. And that same law requires that both the man and the woman receive the same punishment. The law would actually condemn both of them. But they bring only the woman, which happens so often... Where the man goes free and the woman pays the price. And friends, God hates, hates one-sided hypocrisy. God hates one-sided hypocrisy. First thing that's wrong is where's the man? Second thing that's wrong with this picture is that the Pharisees, that the religious leaders don't actually care about the man, they don't actually care about the woman, and they don't actually care about the law of Moses. What they care about is embarrassing Jesus. The woman is just the bait. She's just useful to them for their purposes of bringing some charge against Jesus. It says in verse 6 that they they brought her and asked Jesus this question in order to test him, to bring a charge against him. They want to put Jesus... In the awkward position of having to choose between upholding the Bible and forgiving a sinful person. As if those things are in conflict with each other. As if those things were opposite. They only want to discredit Jesus. So if Jesus were to say, I think she should get off. The charge against him is Jesus thinks he's above the law. Jesus doesn't uphold the law of Moses. If Jesus says, yeah, you're right, the law says she should be stoned, let's kill her. They'll say, what kind of Messiah, what kind of Savior is this? If you come to him, he's going to execute you. Because we're all sinful, aren't we? And so they only want um, to to discredit Jesus. Friends, how often do you and I have this kind of misguided moral fervor? gets ugly really quickly. If we savor the taste of someone under our judgment, we risk it, end up ending up judging even God himself. You know, there's a, there's a reason as you read the gospels, as you read the, the four biographies that we have of Jesus, there's a reason that the Pharisees keep coming up and showing up in the gospel as the villains, as the bad guys, right? they so often show up and like appear as the morons of the story, don't they? And so often we're tempted to read this story, stories in the Gospels and say, Oh man, I am so glad that I'm not like a Pharisee. Which is Pharisaical. If you look down on people who look down on people... Right? If you're Pharise- Pharisaical about Pharisees, you kind of are one, right? If you ever look at someone and look at the situation that someone's in and you say, I would never do that. I would never make that decision. I would never make that mistake. I would never mess up in that way. That's maybe why the Pharisees actually are in the Bible, to show us ourselves. It's misguided moral fervor where I just savor the taste of looking down on other people. Say, I'm certainly better than this person. I mean, there's others better than me, but at least I wouldn't do that. As we see that in our hearts, as we see that in ourselves, it's painful, but that is when I believe our hearts open up to the mercy of God. See, there's only one way we can be saved from ourselves and our self-serving moral fervor, and it's the dying love of Jesus for sinners, for Pharisees, which cracks our hearts open with a new thought. Hmm, huh, maybe it's time for me to change. Maybe it's time for me to realize that my only hope is Jesus. You see, we experience him in power the less we scrutinize others and the more we stare at his cross. We often sing the well-known hymn, When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt heap contempt on all my pride. When we look at the cross, when we see the wonder of the cross, that calls us to just heap and pour contempt on our pride. Jonathan Edwards says this, it's on the screen behind me, spiritual pride is the main door by which the devil comes into the hearts of those who are zealous for the advancement of Christianity. Read that sentence again. Maybe you find yourself in that sentence You're zealous? Are you, do, you, do you desire the advancement of Christianity? Well, Jonathan Edwards said, Spiritual pride is the main door by which the devil comes into the hearts of those who are zealous for the advancement of Christianity. It is the chief inlet of smoke from the bottomless pit, to darken the mind and mislead the judgment. It is the main source of all the mischief the devil introduces, to clog and hinder a work of God. Spiritual pride tends to speak of other person's sins with bitterness or with laughter and levity and an air of contempt. Right? The, I would never do that. But pure Christian humility, rather, tends either to be silent about these problems or to speak of them with grief and pity. Spiritual pride is very apt to suspect others. But a humble Christian is most guarded about himself. He is as suspicious of nothing in the world as he is of his own heart. The proud person is apt to find fault with other believers, that they are low in grace and to be much in observing how cold and dead they are and to be quick to note their deficiencies. And so you're around the room and you're like, huh, that person's not worshipping. They must have cold hearts. If only they'd be more like me. But the humble Christian has so much to do at home and sees so much evil in his own heart and is so concerned about it that he is not apt to be very busy with other hearts. He is apt to esteem others better than himself. So what's wrong with this picture here is that the Pharisees are so aware of this woman's guilt and so blind to their own ugliness that the love of God for the unworthy is a category they do not have. They just don't think about the love of God for the unworthy because they see themselves in the category of the worthy. Secondly, what's right, what's right with this picture? Neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. What what wonderful words. What I love these words. That Jesus, by these words, creates for this woman an unaccused place. He draws a circle around this woman of non-accusation, of safety. Where guilty people who are caught in the act can get right with God again. He does this knowing that his cross is coming. And that he will create for her and for us all this safe place. Where it's okay to be vulnerable. Where it's okay to not be okay. The safe place of non-accusatory, non-shaming vulnerability and openness and humility. Friends, that's, if I could sum up what I would so long for the culture of our church to be, that's what it would be. That we would be a people of non accusation, of non shaming, where it's okay for people who are caught in the act to get right with God again. To be that kind of a place, to be that kind of a people, to be that kind of a community. That's a foretaste of heaven. That's a foretaste of heaven. Where the Father will say to us, for Jesus' sake, you are my beloved child, and I am well pleased with you. For us to have a culture of welcome, of embrace, of non-accusation, of non-shaming, where the gentle grace of Jesus is on display through our lives. Look how personal this is. He's looking her in the eyes with tenderness and with compassion. It's about her and it's about him. But it's also about them. Notice how in verse 10, Jesus straightened up and says, Woman, where are they? Where are those? Where are your accusers? Where, where are those who would accuse you and who would condemn you? Has no one condemned you? He needs to draw her attention to the fact that her accusers have hightailed it out of there. And she's now there with him and now she has nothing to fear. He doesn't just simply say, I do not condemn you. He says, neither, neither do I condemn you. He says, they shamed you, but I am covering you. They accused you, but I'm forgiving you. They stigmatized you, but I am dignifying you. They excluded you, but I am welcoming you. Jesus is where sinners can live again. Because he is on the way to the cross. And he will bear her sin for her. So he will wash her sin away. He will pay her penalty for her defiance of God's intention for her. And friends, we've all fallen short of God's intention, God's dreams for us, God's vision for our lives. We've all fallen short of what He would have for us. And Jesus bears our condemnation so He can say, neither do I condemn you. If Jesus bears our condemnation, we bear it no more. We're free to live again. We're free to live again. Two things to admire about Jesus in this picture. First of all, Jesus claims his right to interpret the Bible. I I, need, I bring this up often. But Jesus here is claiming his right to interpret the Bible. How do we read the Bible? We read the Bible as though it's all about Jesus. Because it is. Jesus says the Bible, the scriptures, they testify of me. Jesus is walking on the road to Emmaus after his resurrection, and it says he opened their eyes and their hearts to see all that was written about him in the law and the prophets, in the Old Testament. Jesus is what the Bible is all about. verse 6, it says that Jesus stooped down and he wrote on the ground. There's always questions. What did he write? We want to know what he wrote. I think it's there because... um, it, this has all the, the markings of eyewitness testimony. Why, did John, why is it recorded here that Jesus wrote on the ground with his finger? Because he did. That's because that's what he did. It, it doesn't tell us what he did. Some think it's referring to John, uh, Jeremiah 17, where there's a, 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 a verse about God writing people's names in the sand with his finger. Um, that's cool, but it doesn't necessarily mean that's what Jesus was writing their names on the ground. But I think, I think it does refer back to the fact that the law was written with the finger of God. That Moses, the law of Moses, was written in stone by God's finger. And here Jesus is writing with his finger why the law is being debated. Because he is the true author of the law. He knew how to apply the law in the light of the gospel. Right? How does he apply the law? He who is without sin casts the first stone. He's not undermining the law. He's applying it correctly in light of the gospel. Now, secondly, so we want to admire about Jesus that he claims the right to interpret the law, to interpret the Bible. Jesus also claims the right to forgive sin. He doesn't condone her actions. He calls it sin. He says, leave your life of sin. He's honest with us, right? That's what we need. That's what we want. We we want to know the truth about ourselves. And he calls sin... Sin. It's better that way. Jesus can't. He, he can't forgive a slip up. Right? Jesus can forgive sin. And he has the right. To forgive every sin. But more than that friends. He has the heart. He has the heart. He has the right to forgive sin. But he has the heart to forgive. Every sin. His heart is. Bursting to forgive you. It's so He's like, put it out there so I can wipe it away. And friends, when we see that about Jesus, when we see this understanding that Jesus not only has the right to forgive sin, he has the heart to forgive sin, he desires to forgive us, doesn't that free us to actually put our sin out there and confess it and not hide it anymore? Why do we want to hide our sin and pretend like it's not there and pretend like we got it all together? Is it because we're not sure that we'll be forgiven if we confess it? But Jesus, his heart is just bursting with love, and and he just wants to forgive you right away. And if we have this assurance of pardon, doesn't that free us to just be honest with ourselves and be honest with God about ourselves? And so, friends, if you're carrying unconfessed sin in your life, Jesus will happily cover it. It says in 1 John 1, it says, it says, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just. He will forgive us all our sin. So what's right about this picture? Jesus. Isn't he beautiful? Isn't he beautiful? Third, how can we step inside this picture? You see this woman? See how personal it is? It's just the woman in Jesus. Just this sinful person and Jesus. Oh, there's nothing greater than just to be before the Lord. And friends, we're before him right now. So what's he saying to you today? Neither do I condemn you. Or go and leave your life of sin. Notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't simply say, neither do I condemn you, period. That is grace without a call to change, and that is not the grace of Jesus. But he also doesn't simply say, leave your life of sin. He doesn't make a demand without mercy for our failure. That's not the demand of God. And neither does he reverse the order. He doesn't say, go and leave your life of sin, and then I won't condemn you. That's impossible. So what did he say? I don't condemn you. Now go and leave your life of sin. The right message in its all its fullness in the proper sequence in the proper order. We receive his word of full of free of unhesitant, enthusiastic, wholehearted, sudden grace. You are forgiven. You are cleansed. You are washed. You are free through my cross. And we also hear his message not only of no condemnation, but we also revere his call to clarity, to decidedness, to new purpose, to obedience to the upward call of God. Jesus says, follow me. And so we receive his call to uncompromising loyalty to his will and to his way. He has freed us from everything that's against us so that now we are free to run like the wind after him because all our failings are covered in advance see the forgiveness of the uh, uh, by the blood of jesus is that it turns the page in our stories and so that he can now write a new chapter in our lives and friends if you if you worry about the free grace of god it just lets anyone sinful people off the hook if that worries you You might be in danger of false righteousness, of self-righteousness, of that spiritual pride. And friends, if you resist for any reason the call of God that commands. Because you don't trust Him to sustain you. You don't think that He will help you. You don't think that you can follow him. That you can obey his commands in his will and his way. That he won't be enough to help you follow after him. You are in danger of false grace. But if you rejoice in his mercy and in his power, then you are a Christian on your way to glory. And so here's what God wants every one of us to do right now. Is to receive this word. Neither do I condemn you. To receive this word. I don't condemn you. Your past is washed away. Your future failing is already covered in advance. The verdict is rendered before the performance. To receive that word. And then to hear his word. Now it's time for change. Let's go get after it guys. So what does he want to do in your life? Maybe today is the day where you take this assurance of forgiveness and just swallow it whole. Maybe you've never done that. Where you've just come to him and said, I have no defense. This woman makes no defense. I have no defense. My, my behavior is indefensible. I've neglected you. I've, I've run away from you for years. I I just drop it. Maybe today's the day where you take that assurance of forgiveness and swallow it whole. That that sin that I've struggled with, I'm giving it to you. That sin that has burdened me for years. Today, I I just bring it to you and hear your words. Lord, neither do I condemn you. Give it to him. He can take it. He can take it. Maybe the step you need today is to open your heart to Jesus and say, I'm so sorry that I've been telling you that you can't change me. I've been telling you that you can't actually make me a holy person. That you, I've been telling you that I'm such a failure that not even God could change me. And maybe today's the day where you can say, you know what? You are enough for me. You are enough for me. Complete openness before the Lord today. Complete openness because he says, I'm not condemning you. I'm not condemning you. Now let's get going. Let's get going. Father in heaven, would you speak so clearly to us today? This word of non-accusation, non-shaming, gentle... Gentle grace. Would that be so clear to us today? Father, I pray that there would be men and women in this room right now who are just for their, who are just swallowing whole this message and taking it in and standing in amazement saying, Wow, you're forgiving me? You're forgiving me of that? Give us the grace to believe, Lord Jesus, in you. And give us the grace to believe that you will lead us in a life of of turning away from our life of sin. Of rebellion against you. Of neglect of you. Holy Spirit, you're, you're calling many hearts even in these moments. And so, be tender, be gracious, be compassionate. I pray in Jesus' name.